Hello, and welcome back to part two of Emraj episode. This is Riddhi Patel, and I'm here with Mary McBarry, my co-host. We welcome you to Oral Max Facts. So in case if you guys missed it, this episode is part of our ACOMS talk. So make sure you log in to acoms.com slash oralmaxfacts, answer a few questions, and get your CE credit. Yes, please. <laughs> so just a little reminder for our first episode, if you haven't listened to it, make sure you go back and it will make more sense for you to come back to this episode after you listen to that one. So as we discussed last time in part one of this topic, the frequency of MRANGE is highly variable and it ranges depending on a few factors, such as which drug is this patient taking, what is their treatment indication, is it for osteoporosis or is it for cancer? What doses of medication are they taking? And what is the duration of their treatment? And we also talked about different classes of medications that have been associated with osteonecrosis of the jaw and how they differ from avibisphosphonate-induced osteonecrosis. We know from a meta-analysis that when comparing the safety of denosumab and zolandronic acid in patients with bone metastasis, there is really no significant difference in the risk of MRANGE between the two drug groups. We also alluded to the fact that the evidence supporting the association of antiangiogenic medications with the development of MRANGE is primarily based on case reports. And finally, we ended the talk with 2014 Amos vision paper that defines the classification of MRANGE, and we also talked about the pathogenesis of the disease. Miriam, what are we going to talk about today? So in today's episode, we are going to focus on the evidence behind our current prevention plans. We can all agree that the treatment of MRANGE is challenging and there's a wide range of treatment options available. But doing our part to prevent development of osteonecrosis should be our primary goal. And that's what we are discussing here today. Absolutely. Also, just so you guys know, as we were writing this episode and going through a bunch of articles, we realized that this topic is much more dense than originally we had anticipated it to be. So we are breaking this down even further. We had originally planned for this episode to be prevention and management. However, I think just to keep your interest and for our sanity, it will be better to just break this down into prevention today. And then our next episode, we are going to talk about treatment options. Okay? Definitely stay tuned. Okay, starting with prevention. So there are many prophylactic measures one can use either alone or in combination. But we all agree that the primary means of prevention is completion of dental treatment anything from restorative therapy to root canal treatment to periodontal treatment, and of course, tooth extraction before starting the anti-resorptive or anti-angiogenic treatment. And this is all sound good, but how soon before initiating the treatment with these drugs can a patient address her dental issues? There isn't much evidence to back up the answer for this question. I think a good rule of thumb is to provide adequate time for tissue closure. According to Cochrane Library Review of the Intervention of Management of MRANGE, no time frame was suggested for prophylactic treatment. However, German protocol calls for six 
to eight weeks of healing prior to start of zoledronic acid with documentation of complete mucosal healing. It is also important to educate our patients and ask them to discontinue bad habits that jeopardizes their oral health, such as smoking, drug, and alcohol use. And this is not what we see. Oftentimes, patients come to our clinic a week before they need their IV bisphosphonate for their prostate cancer or starting medications for osteonecrosis. And well, their PCP would like us to clear or do all the necessary treatment. And it calls for better collaboration and better a pro-team approach to make sure we do have that time if we are going to extract teeth in order to observe patients to full healing before initiation of this medication. Yeah, that's a really good point, Miriam. Collaboration is definitely the key. And we're so, going to keep coming back. We're going to keep coming back to this <laughs> with actual numbers too. So that was for prevention before we start these drugs. But a lot of times what we actually see in our practice is a patient has already started avibisphosphonate or have been on these drugs for a number of years before they come to you in need for extraction. So what do we do in that scenario? Well, for a long time, there was a debate about using biomarkers to assess the risk. And I dare say it's still an ongoing debate. Now, this is where the most popular word comes, CTX. CTX is one of the biomarkers that was proposed for risk assessment of MRANGE. So let's see, what is the CTX business all about? And why can't we still come to a conclusion about this biomarker? As cool as CTX is, the answer is still to be determined. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> so what exactly is CTX? CTX is a C-terminal telopeptide. It basically measures an octapeptide fragment that is released from type 1 bone collagen, specifically when osteoclast is resorbing the bone. Essentially, CTX is an index for bone turnover, with lower values of CTX representing that the bone turnover is low and a reduced healing capability is indicated. In patients with increased bone turnover, the CTX levels tend to be higher. And a good example would be an active resorptive phase of patients with Paget's disease. When bone turnover is decreased by bisphosphonate, the CTX level tends to be no. low. <laughs> and these effects are seen within weeks of starting the bisphosphonate therapy. Now, for those that are advocates for CTX test, they claim that these patients are all bisphosphonate can be risk stratified with this blood test. but Let's look at some practicality of this blood test, okay? It is not the simplest test to obtain in any lab. I know when I was in residency, we would send for CTX. This lab test had to be sent out to a different lab, and the results didn't come back right away. It would normally take about a week for them to come back. Exactly. But let's dive deeper into the science behind CTX. Over the last 10 years, preoperative serum level of C-terminal telopeptide crosslink CTX, a byproduct of bone remodeling, has been presented as a predictor and a prognostic factor for risk of developing postoperative emrange. Dr. Marx was the first one to popularize this concept. And I'm sure many of you have heard 
about preoperative drug holiday of three to six months for patients with a three-year or greater history of bisphosphonate use. Why three to six months? Well, even though there is no strong evidence, here we will discuss where that number comes from. So Miriam, what values or CTX are we using to stratify our patients? Based on the study by Dr. Marks, values less than 100 picogram per milliliter represents high risk. And values between 100 picogram milliliter to 150 represents moderate risk. And values more than 150 represents minimal or no risk. One of the better way of assessing CTX as a predictor of osteonecrosis of the jaw is a prospective single center control study. Don't you agree, Ridi? Absolutely. And a recent publication in 2017 did exactly that. Let's dive in. In this study, all patients on oral bisphosphonate for osteoporosis referred for extractions over a period of 6.5 years, and they were included in the standard protocol. What is the protocol? It was very thorough. So listen to this. In the consultation phase, they had a full medical and dental history. They took a fasting morning CTX test. The consent discussion involved if CTX level is less than 150 picogram per milliliter, the patients were advised to have a drug holiday or have an endodontic treatment. The drug holiday estimated an increase of 25 picogram per milliliter per month after bisphosphonate discontinued until it reached a value of, guess correctly, above 150 picogram per milliliter. Now, if CTX level is above 150 picogram per milliliter, then the extraction was perceived. In the pre-extraction phase in this study, they put patients on antibiotics one hour before the extractions. What antibiotics did they use? They used two grams of oral amoxicillin. And if somebody was allergic, they used clindamycin, 600 milligrams. During the extraction, they make sure that the extractions was done with minimal trauma, a word you're going to hear a lot in this episode, and they suture the sockets afterward. Postoperatively, they make sure they advise patients to use Peridex rents for seven days, and they brought the patients back for follow-up. So, this study ended up having 950 patients and 2,461 extractions. 181 of those patients had a CTX level that was lower than 150 picogram per milliliter. And as we discussed, that was a risk factor for developing osteonecrosis of the jaw. Four patients developed medication-induced osteonecrosis of the jaw. And all of the patients who developed osteonecrosis of the jaw had a CTX level lower than 150 picogram per milliliter. What does this tell us? It tells us the CTX level lower than 150 picogram per milliliter has a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 81%. It's worth mentioning that the patients in this study were on aledronate bisphosphonate, and there are other studies that predicted a much lower sensitivity and a specificity for CTX, but those studies were retrospective in design. So even though this one single center study calculated such a high sensitivity for CTX, they're not blinded to their limitation, which is their power. 
In fact, I think the biggest takeaway from this study was that they calculated an effective sample size for putting this topic once and for all to rest. And according to their calculation, based on the incidence of MRANGE and variation in CTX value, we need a study that requires 10,000 patients, all on oral bisphosphonate and all requiring dental extractions. For a large academic center alone, that will take nearly 65 years. Hence wow. the desperate need for collaboration, <laughs> Ruby. Let's go, let's go, let's make it happen. You know, I think we can because a lot of studies that I see in medical journals, they collaborate a lot. Like it's multi-center studies, you know, and that's really what we need, multi-center studies. How many of those do we do in, in our specialty? Haven't read many of them in the past no, couple of weeks. No, I mean, and I mean, especially for something like this, it really shouldn't be all that hard, right? It, yeah. We can easily collaborate. Yeah, the European studies and um, even the far Asians, like Japanese study, they often have very similar protocols when it comes to this pre-op antibiotics and minimal, like atraumatic extraction. So the protocols have been pretty much standardized. So it would be easy to adopt and um, collaborate multi-centrally. Mm-hmm. Multi-centrally, yeah. is that a word? A word now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's all well and good. Great study done really well. You know, obviously we don't have high, high enough numbers. Let's see what the other societies are saying about CTX because it's really not that popular with AMOS or ADA. So what is the bottom line? Where are we clinically? According to American Academy of Oral Medicine, even though these markers quantify the amount of degradation molecules that are produced by osteoclastic activity at the time of sampling, they think that these are not enough and they do not necessarily reflect the overall decrease in bone remodeling activity caused by bisphosphonates or any other interresorptive medications. So basically what they're saying is that this is based on limited data and they do not support it. Okay, so we learned what this CTX is, we learned how it works, and we learned about some of the good studies that are out there and the fact that overall there isn't enough evidence for it to be suggested uh, within our American Academy of Oral Medicine or AMOS to be integrated into our daily practice. So this brings us to drug holiday. Didn't we learn that bisphosphonate stays in the bone for a long time? So how does its discontinuation could help? I think um, that's a really good question, Miriam. Bisphosphonate does stay in the bone for a long time. In fact, according to Dr. Marks, it stays around for about 12 years. Bisphosphonates is retained in bone and have a terminal half-life of X number of years. So discontinuing it for a few months will have really very little effect on bisphosphonate that is already incorporated in the bone. However, there are other effects of these drugs, and these are the antiangiogenic activity that we alluded to in our part one, and also inhibition of the proliferation and migration of epithelial cells that could be minimized, and this could help with at least mucosal healing. Now, it is controversial whether bisphosphonate discontinuation is necessary prior to invasive dental procedure, such as tooth extraction, so that we can prevent amrage. There are many theories behind the effectiveness of drug holidays, and this is 
going to be an episode on its own. It's beyond <laughs> the scope of this podcast. One of the theories is linked to CTX. So having said that it is controversial, the Amos committee has some recommendations for drug holiday, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Drug holiday, however, is recommended by both German and Australian protocols, but the ADA Advisory Committee on Scientific Affairs and the International Consensus Paper both do not currently recommend drug holiday for oral bisphosphonates before invasive dental procedures. So you can imagine how confusing this whole world of Amaranth is currently. <laughs> exactly. But let's talk about the science um, or the theory behind drug holiday when it comes to CTX. So CTX value of greater than 200 picogram per milliliter is considered a safe zone. We already discussed that. If a drug holiday is considered, we expect a return to normal bone turnover to happen. If we go by Dr. Mark's number, the rate of incidence in CTX is expected to be 26.4 picogram per milliliter. And there's a range there, 21 to 32.1 per month. So it is possible to calculate how long a patient needs to hold off on oral bisphosphonate so that the bone turnover goes back to a safe level. To simplify things, we should think of a rate of 25 picogram per milliliter per month, and therefore a patient that has a level of 100 picogram per month, and we are aiming to get to 200, will need to be on a drug holiday of four months. And there you have it. That's where those numbers come from. And that's only based on CTX theory. There is another exactly. theory out there, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Okay, so, so just, just keep that in, in mind, okay? So why there is so much debate about drug holiday? In a recent multicenter retrospective study out by our Japanese colleague that was published in Journal of Bone Mineral, 427 patients were studied to evaluate the efficacy of drug holiday. They found that discontinuing anti-resorptive agent did not influence the treatment outcome. However, they did find that in both osteoporotic and oncologic group of patients, anti-resorptive agent discontinuation significantly increased the cure rate of osteonecrosis of the jaw. In contrast, drug holidays showed no effect on improving outcomes in patients with both osteoporosis and malignant tumor who underwent surgical therapy. Therefore, saying that drug holiday is not necessary. Well, there goes all the debate on CTX and drug holiday. So, Miriam, let's see. What does the 2014 Amos position paper say about this? The risk of developing embryonge associated with oral bisphosphonates, they say, is increased when the duration of therapy exceeds four years. And we talked about this in our previous episode. If somebody is taking corticosteroid or other antiangiogenic agents, their risk increases. This time frame could be decreased to less than four years. So in this case, they recommend that the clinician should have the patient discontinue oral bisphosphonates for at least two months prior to the treatment and three months after the elective dental procedure. And the rationale behind this approach, we'll go into it a little bit more detail later on in this talk. However, this rationale, according to them, comes from one study that shows that osteoclast function fluctuates 
with um, discontinuing oral bisphosphonates. And then there are other studies that have shown improved outcome with Emron's treatment when these patients are taken off of bisphosphonates. So what if patient is taking oral bisphosphonates for less than four years? Well, in that case, you do not need to change anything about your treatment options. So you can proceed with the plant surgery. You do not need to consider taking patients off of oral bisphosphonates. What about dental implants, though? So when it comes to dental implants, we don't really have any concrete guidelines from Amos. In this case, they recommend to obtain informed consent from patients, make them understand the long-term possibility of implant failure, and the risk of developing hemorrhage is low, although it's still there. Okay, and most of this data really just comes from animal studies. The best we can do is to keep bringing patients back for a recall and monitor them closely. So essentially, when it comes to oral bisphosphonates, it seems that we have some guidelines. And as of yet, Amos still does not recommend obtaining CTX prior to procedure. When it comes to IV bisphosphonate, however, we still don't have any such recommendations. You're all alone. <laughs> all alone. <laughs> all right, next time we'll do a little karaoke too. <laughs> Okay, so what about those patients who have taken oral bisphosphonate for less than four years or have taken corticosteroid or anti-angiogenic medication? Okay, in this case, we should contact the provider that prescribes this medication and ask them if we could discontinue oral bisphosphonate, aka drug holiday, for at least two months before the oral surgery. If the systemic conditions permit, the anti-resorptive should not be restarted until the osseous healing completely happened. These strategies are based on reports that corticosteroids and anti-angiogenic agents, in combination with anti-resorptive therapy, will increase the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, and a drug holiday may mitigate that risk. For those patients that are taking oral bisphosphonate for more than four years, with or without any dual medical therapy, we should still contact the PCP and see if we could discontinue anti-resorptive for two months before oral surgery. And again, if the systemic condition permits, the bisphosphonate, for example, should not be started until the osseous healing has occurred. All right, so just to summarize, Amos' position paper is not supporting CTX as of now, and they still recommend two months of discontinuation of bisphosphonate for patients taking bisphosphonate or any other anti-resorptive for more than four years. So where, where is this two months coming from? What is their theory behind it? That's a very good question, Riddhi. These two months are popularized by Amos 2014 position paper and is based on one study that was published in 2013 in general dentistry by Dr. Dam and Jones. This is verbatim from the position paper we could not find the full text of this particular article. So take it with a grain of salt. Here we go. While there are no studies to support this recommendation, their approach is based on bone physiology and pharmacokinetic of anti-resorptive medication and merit consideration. That brings it to level five evidence. They note that since 50% of serum bisphosphonate undergoes renal excretion, the major reservoir of bisphosphonate is the osteoclast whose lifespan is two weeks. 
Therefore, majority of free bisphosphonate within the serum should be extremely low after two months, following the last dose of oral bisphosphonate and two months of drug-free period before having any dental procedure. So, two months after, I'm assuming is eight weeks of mucosal healing, back to the original definition. All right, enough about CTX and drug holiday. I'm already fed up with this. (laughs) Positive energy, positive energy. So what we are saying is that there's a lot of opportunity for research and for people to get involved and take their clinical experience to the basic science researcher and collaborate. There are two words in this episode, collaboration and traumatic extractions. <laughs> All right. So just to, just to get your opinion, what, what do you guys do in residency? Depends on which site we are at. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, you know, some sites, uh, my, uh, my attendings are very strongly believe in what the position paper was advocating to have those honest conversation with the patients. Um, in other uh, sites, my attendings go above and beyond to prevent an extraction in patients who are considered high risk and they would try to facilitate to get, they get endodontic treatment. But yeah, the, there's no consensus out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. Let's move on. Move on. So that was our talk with CTX as a predictor and prognostic factor and the science or lack of science behind Dirac Holiday's recommendation. What are some of the other interventions to prevent osteonecrosis of the jaw on patients who require extractions and have been on IV or oral bisphosphonate? There are some other surgical interventions that suggested in literature to reduce the risk of embranche. And as we discussed, they are using a non-traumatic surgical technique, which means that a surgical treatment with minimal tissue damage should be the goal for all extractions. Use of plasma-rich in growth factor in post-extraction socket and primary wound closure. We have to start by telling you guys that according to Cochrane Library publication on interventions of managing medication in related osteonecrosis of the jaw, they looked at all the published randomized clinical trial. They found that there is insufficient evidence to either claim or refute a benefit of either intervention that we suggested a minute ago, which was plasma rich in growth factor in post extractions and or primary wound closure. Yeah. So, of course, getting randomized clinical trials, hard to do. But let's look at some evidence behind other prophylaxis measures, specifically primary wound closure. Now, let me just give you a fair warning. A lot of this evidence comes from countries other than America. I can I just quickly also say that all these interventions are extremely easy to do. It doesn't take extra, that much extra surgical time. And even if it's helping a little bit, I'm willing to do it. Yeah, you know? I think so. Definitely, definitely. So let's look at Germany. Okay, in Germany, the Board of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons follows specific protocol for tooth extraction on patients with history of bisphosphonates. Their patients receive perioperative antibiotic prophylaxis, either an intravenous penicillin, 10 million units, international units, once daily, or a clindamycin 600 milligrams three times a day in case of penicillin energy for one day before and one day after extraction. 
they do their extractions in a traumatic manner, and then they smooth out the sharp bony edges, and they do a thorough mucosal wound closure. What is wound closure, Ready? <laughs> it's a specific technique, okay? And we are happy to share a picture on our Insta post, so make sure you go check it out. Yes. Okay, what's the evidence behind German protocol and primary wound closure? The idea of primary wound closure first appeared in 2008 in a publication titled Update Bisphosphonate Therapy, an advisory statement from American Dental Association Council on Scientific Affairs. Dr. Edwards and all recommended a conservative surgical technique with primary tissue closure in addition to antibiotic prophylaxis whenever it's feasible. Now, when you look at the paper, those statements themselves aren't um, referenced. But this idea was tested in a prospective study in 2011 by our Italian colleagues, Dr. Mozzati and all. And in his paper, that was published in a very good journal, he studied two different surgical protocols. In this study, patients were randomly divided to two groups of 250 subjects. In the first group, the surgical extraction were carried out by intracircular incision and detachment of full thickness flap to allow wound healing with primary intention. And to ensure non-traumatic evulsion, authors write that the dental extraction was followed by a delicate cortage and osteoplastic procedures on the more fragile bone septum and cortical bone area. In the second group, or protocol B, the extractions were carried out without detachment of full thickness flap. Sockets were filled with an absorbable gelatin sponge hemostatic to allow wound healing with secondary intention. And in his perspective study, he found that neither of the groups, whether the ones that had the primary wound closures or the one that had the socket filled with gel foam, developed osteonecrosis of the jaw, therefore supporting that primary wound closure could prevent development of osteonecrosis of the jaw. After this study, there were several other retrospective studies that kind of illustrate the benefits of primary wound closure. And one of the main one that has been recently published is a study by our Japanese colleague. <laughs> Rudy, would you like to break that down for us? Absolutely. So, in this article, they had about 2,500 dental extractions that were performed in about 1,100 patients. In this study, these patients were divided according to the number of teeth extracted, whether they were single or multiple. The state of the wound, was it open or closed? And the duration of oral bisphosphonate administration, was it greater than four years or less than four years? And finally, the use of drug holiday before tooth extraction greater than two months or less than two months. So what did they find? They found a failure to close the wound to be a significant risk factor in MRAJ in their multivariate analysis. Tooth extraction should always be performed with a traumatic extraction technique and minimal bone damage. This study investigated the incidence of MRAJ as the primary outcome and possible development of MRANGE was noted and classified into different stages. In this multivariate analysis study, they found that traumatic extraction, including root amputation, is actually a significant risk factor in the development of MRANGE. And lastly, 
The effectiveness of a short-term drug holiday was not confirmed in this study because it failed to show any significant impact on MRAJ incidence. This study that comes from our Japanese colleague was a multi-central, multi-center and retrospective study, and um, they had a much higher sample size than previously published. But yeah, we only need 10 times that now. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just need to do it 10 times uh, that. But again, going back to Cochrane Library Review on commenting on this intervention is lack of randomized clinical trial that leaves us hanging. So this, this study was particularly looked at patients who are taking oral bisphosphonate, right? So mm-hmm. what if a patient's taking IV bisphosphonate? Will doing a primary wound closure still be beneficial? And as you might have guessed, there aren't too many studies. But we found one small perspective of study for you guys. This study that was done with Lori and colleague had 38 extractions in 23 patients that were treated with IV bisphosphonate for an average of 17.5 months. All of their patients received preoperative and postoperative antibiotics and they obtained primary wound closures after extractions, and they did a thorough cortage of extraction socket, and they reported no osteonecrosis. But how long did they follow up these patients? An average of 14 to, wait for it, wait for it, 965 days, almost. <laughs> the, but, uh, but the study is much more well-designed. Um, so let me, let me tell you a little bit more, more details about this study. Once they decided that the extraction needed to happen, whether it was one or more, they asked the patient to rinse with Paradex once daily. And if the patient had a lot of calculus or poor oral hygiene, they had a professional hygiene that was done two to three weeks before the extraction. Three days before the surgical extraction, patients started taking one gram of amoxicillin every eight hours and clindamycin if they were allergic to penicillin. And that this was continued for 17 days until the second control visit. On the day of the intervention, a full thickness mucoperiosteal flap was reflected and patient went under local anesthesia at the surgical site and the involved tooth was extracted with minimal trauma to the cortical plate. Then the extraction socket was debrided and curette to remove all granulation and infected tissue. Afterward, the flap was sutured through, make sure that we have a soft tissue primary closure. And patients were told to, again, put Paradex gel on the surgical wound three times a day until the second control visits. And the extractions were performed by multiple oral surgery residents and students in the last year of their dental school. And one week after the surgery, the sutures were removed and patients were followed up at one, two, and four weeks and two, three, and six months and even up to one year. So this was a cool study, right, Rudy? Yeah, it's definitely well-designed. I just have a problem with the power. I yeah, mean, of course, yeah. yeah. I don't know how we can draw conclusion from such low number of patients. Exactly, exactly. So extraction is one thing, Mariam. What do I tell my patients when they present for other procedures such as dental implant or root canal or periodontal procedures? Mm-hmm. That's another gray area, my friend. Another mm-hmm. gray area. Yeah. Fifty shade of gray. <laughs> That's what they meant. Fifty shades M-Ron, of Emron. Fifty shade of gray. That's will be the title of the episode. 
Okay, there's still a little bit more about prevention we want to tell you guys about, okay? And this is where my favorite subject comes, that is PRF. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's keep in mind that we actually lack large controlled clinical trials to draw any conclusions when it comes to PRF, but we will present to you guys whatever limited data exists, okay? So in 2011, Scholar and colleagues prospectively reported on 220 extractions in 64 consecutive patients that were exposed to IV bisphosphonate therapy. These patients had preoperative antibiotics and their extractions were filled with plasma-rich growth factors, PRF, and they obtained a primary wound closure with vestibular soft tissue flap. In this study, they found that five patients developed amrange in five extraction sockets, and that was 2.27%. So what do they conclude? They concluded in this prospective study that their treatment protocol provides safe removal of teeth and reduced frequency of postoperative amrange when using PRF and primary wound closure. Interesting. These same people came back in 2013 and they reported a more rapid protocol for tooth extractions in IV bisphosphonate-exposed patients. I'm, just, I'm actually a little impressed with this group because they're actually looking at IV bisphosphonate group versus mm -hmm. everybody else that's looking at oral bisphosphonate group. Mm -hmm. They're going for the big gun. They're like, if we can cure this, then <laughs> it, it could apply to all others. <laughs> so in this study, they had 63 patients with 202 teeth that were extracted after initiating oral antibiotic therapy the evening before surgery. The investigators in this group extracted the teeth and they placed the PRF in the extraction sites. They modified their technique for mucosal closure by only providing simple cross-suturing and incomplete mucosal closure for maintenance and stability of PRF rather than an elaborate soft tissue flap that they did in their previous study. So in this study, they found that Ambrange was noted in two extraction sockets, and this time it's 0.99% in one patient after the surgery. So after everything that we presented about primary wound closure, here comes a study that tells us that if you're using PRF, you don't have to do a primary wound closure and yeah. you'll still get good results. Yeah, you could. Or you, yeah, definitely. I mean, that takes us back to Dr. Mozati, a study where his, um, the group that Yeah, he had used gel phone. Yeah, they mm -hmm. used gel phone, but I got the similar results. And then kind of continuing along this, uh, and there was another study in 2017 by Asaka and all that involved 102 patients that were divided into a PRF group and a control group to evaluate the effectiveness of platelet-rich fibrin as a wound healing accelerator in patients undergoing oral bisphosphonate therapy and requiring dental extraction. In this study, patients were on oral bisphosphonate for an average of 32 months and were followed for three months after extraction. Delayed recovery was observed in nine out of 73 control patients, whereas 29 PRF patients exhibited complete epithelialization of the socket within one month. The prevalence of delayed recovery was significantly higher in the control group than the PRF group, and that was statistically significant. Early epithelialization was confirmed in all PRF patients, and there were no intra-op complications, and none of the patients exhibit onset of medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. Voila. So what is the bottom line with prevention? 
is to first risk stratify your patients. Yep. Patient is taking oral bisphosphonate for greater than four years. You should consider antibiotic prophylaxis, drug holiday, and, you know, why not do a primary wound closure while you're at it? And do a little PRF. It just takes five minutes. Or even better. And I'm definitely doing that with IV bisphosphonate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And if the patients are taking IV prosphonate, IV bisphosphonate, it is definitely a gray area, but let's consider doing the prophylaxis antibiotic and primary wound closures and PRF. Because again, why not? So that brings us to the end of this prevention topic. So that brings us to the end of this episode, this very exciting, riveting episode on prevention of medication-induced osteonecrosis of the jaw. And um, before you guys leave us here, remember to give us thumbs up. Five-star reviews. Please give us five-star reviews and check (laughs) us on our Insta and ask us questions and tell us what you like to hear next. Yeah, we know you found this helpful because we most certainly did. And come back and tune in for our next episode on management of medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. And that's also going to be another thrilling and exciting talk. It certainly will be. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. (sighs) Goodbye.